Hello, my name is Ros Ward and you're listening to Red Flag Radio. We record the show on Indigenous land that was stolen and never ceded, that always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Red Flag Radio is proud to be a revolutionary socialist podcast and we talk about all things contemporary, historical, theoretical and most importantly we talk about um, all aspects of politics with people who are actually active participants in um, the struggles and the history that we talk about and we're very pleased to do that again on this episode and if you like what we're um, doing with the podcast, if you enjoy it, uh, it's really fantastic for us to um, have your support financially on patreon.com forward slash red flag radio podcast and thank you to all our current subscribers. Um, it's really, yeah, um, quite uh, humbling to have so many people support the podcast and me and Liam who produces the show really appreciate it and you hope and um, we hope that you enjoy some of the upgrades we're making um, to some of the sound in lockdown as we are here in Melbourne at the moment. So this episode we're talking about um, the crisis in higher education and not just what is going on but actually more I think about how we should respond and we have a very special lineup as always on Red Flag Radio. Liam Ward who is um, the producer as I said who is like me and like Katie and Jack members of the National Tertiary Education Union. So that's the union for people working in higher education in Australia. Most people who do are covered by that union. Um, and we're also part of NTU Fightback, which was set up um, about six months ago to respond to some of the responses to the crisis in higher education that we didn't think were the right ones. And so um, six months on, we're reflecting on how that response has gone. I think what we could probably, most people would agree, characterise as the most serious crisis in higher education in, in Australia's history, and that's reflected internationally as well. And in the wake of just in the last week, uh, a new package pushed through or that's about to be finalised in Parliament um, by the Liberal government which is called the Job Ready Graduates Package, which is um, changing things even more and cutting funding for higher education further and even more entrenching the approach that staff who work in universities and higher education and students who learn in universities are expected to pay for this crisis that um, we'll be talking about. So two of our fellow NTU fightback activists, um, people who are subscribers to the NTU fight back email list. Um, we have over a thousand people who are part of that network will be familiar with Katie Wood's name uh, and people who work at Melbourne University and are part of the union there will also be uh, familiar with Katie. Um, she is a, a delegate in the library there and she's an archivist and alongside Katie virtually um, is Jack Hines. Jack who is a casual tutor at um, Victoria University uh, which is sort of in the second wave, if you like, of um, universities announcing restructures. That's just at the beginning of that process there. And we also have a student perspective from um, Grace Hill, who is a student activist who is currently based in our national capital, Canberra. I'm sure, you know, just uh, today, we're recording this on the 18th of October, um, pouring over the very exciting results of the ACT election now we shouldn't oh, absolutely take, we shouldn't take the piss out of that too much but it's too easy to do that um yeah so grace is here to talk about the student stuff and we're talking about how we are responding but first of all obviously let's think about the magnitude of the challenge that faces us as workers in higher education and kind of how we got to this point so liam do you want to kick us off with um what the impact has been of the COVID 19 pandemic and maybe not even of the pandemic, and why yeah. it's such seen as such a big crisis. I mean, is this a real crisis or is this a confected crisis? In 
in my like I kind of conceive it as as being both. So what I mean by that is that um, like if you think about education, the the, t- the higher education sector in Australia, you know, as an industry is uh, big business, you know, massive business. It's over recent years that some of the stats that were regularly pumped out pointed out that the um, you know as an export industry, it was I think the biggest in Victoria and the third biggest in the country. Uh, you know, because uh, international students in particular come in, that's counted as an export. You know, so it's it's big business and it remains big business uh, even despite the impact uh, of the pandemic and, um, you know, particularly the travel bans. Uh, the travel bans uh, really cut at the heart of uh, the whole kind of business model that had been established over the last couple of decades in education. Uh, and what it meant in the immediate sense was a massive um, shortfall in forecast revenues for the sector uh, through 2020 and 2021. And that doesn't mean they're broke, you know. So in terms of, yeah, what, what I mean by it can be a crisis in the sense that they're essentially expecting not to make as much profit as they thought they would. They're still making profit. They're not broke. They're not even in the red. Uh, you know, the universities are still awash in cash in that way. Um, but they're just not expecting to make as much money. So in terms of the scale of the thing, uh, for a sector that last year made like the total revenue of the sector last year was in the order of $38 billion. And the originally, you know, like earlier this year at the start of the crisis, the estimates of what the shortfall would be were of around $4.5, $4.6 billion. You know, so $4.5 billion, it's a lot of money, obviously. Like it's hard, I can't even get my, can't, I can't imagine what that money is, like fucking lots of money. Uh, but in this sector, if the total revenue last year was $38 billion, well, $4.5 billion is hardly like a wipeout, you know what I mean? It's it's a big shortfall, but it's not a total washout. Um, it's also worth noting, though, that uh, even those predictions were kind of rubbery at the time. You know, at the start of the crisis, they they were this sort of estimate, and there's certainly been some amendments made to the forecasts recently. So, University of Adelaide, for example, uh, you know, the executive there came out and said, "Oh, turns out things are not as bad as we said they were three months ago." Um, there can be all sorts of specific reasons there, not least of all because the vice chancellor is a bloody sexist, corrupt goon, uh, and there was a whole scandal around that that probably you know former stayed vice chancellor, yep. former vice chancellor, yeah. Um, so you know, but 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 yeah, I guess the take-home thing there is that uh, you know the the scale of the crisis is it, it can be painted either ways depending on who's talking and and what their kind of aim is at the at the, at the given time. Mm. What we can say though, in terms of what the kind of flow and effect or the consequence of it all uh, is that it's unleashed a sort of bloodbath of cuts uh, as the vice chancellors and the university executives uh, really try to, well, to me, it seems like they've got two aims. Uh, first, that they want to shift that that downturn, like shift the cost of the crisis onto workers and students. And second, that they're trying to, and this is, I guess, more fundamental, they're trying to seize this opportunity to uh, ran through a whole series of fundamental restructures, you know, to like anything can be justified in the current context at universities. Mm-hmm. Any kind, there's no cut too severe, you know, it doesn't matter how many jobs go, how many courses are cut, the scale of the attacks on wages and conditions, anything can be justified uh, just by pointing to the fact that we're in a crisis. And, you know, therefore there is no alternative, this has to be done. And they're using that kind of dynamic uh, as an opportunity to fundamentally restructure the whole sector uh, to make it, and in the words of some vice chancellors, I think it was the Melbourne Uni vice chancellor who said quite openly uh, that they want to turn the university into a sort of smaller, leaner, more efficient institution. Mm. I think that yeah. sums up their whole approach. That leaner word is always just sends a shudder through, yeah. pe- through people who have been through restructures. Um, and efficiency, obviously, is the other one. But I mean, they've even admitted in, in a number of places that management already had these kind of plans on on the shelf ready to go and they thought oh wait a second we can get that plan off the shelf now and call it a pandemic response you know so i mean that that hasn't barely been hidden in in some places yeah um so yeah so i guess we're looking at and and the national tertiary education union sort of keeps coming out with different um projections around job cuts um in their thousands and, you know, tens of thousands, in fact. Um, and we've already seen thousands of job cuts. Again, no accurate measure is available, unfortunately, because 
um, a lot of the job cuts are casual workers, although you would expect as well um, after a series of these restructures when they've got rid of more secure jobs to have an increase in casualization as, a, as one of the outcomes of this, but we can uh, come to that. So, yeah, we're looking at this um, huge forecasted loss of income that's expected to flow through. I think they talk about a pipeline or something. <laughs> There's all of these fucking management euphemisms for everything, um, backed up by the federal government um, who think, oh, yeah, we could um, do with a good restructure of higher education, yeah. especially all these bloody cultural Marxist academics like that Ros Ward, um, get rid of them. So so we've got this whole sort of perfect storm, I guess. And then if we turn to our side of the picture, and our side I'm talking about organised workers um, and students, where are we with that, Katie, and sort of what has brought us to the point? How What's the balance of forces, I guess, from um, our perspective? Oh, hi. Um, well, I think it's really important to start from a realistic assessment of where we are, and it's not that I don't think that we should be ambitious and try to stop the attacks that are happening and that our aim is always to stop the current round of attacks and to advocate for a vision of free public education that's accessible to anyone who wants it. But we can't just look at where we want to be and organise like we're there. Both students and staff have experienced decades now of defeat. Um, I should know, I, I started my time as a student activist in 2002 and went from there into to being an activist in the NTU, so I've seen it. Mm. There are a few important victories here and there that I think we should always look to, but the overall picture is one uh, on the staff side where our union density and our levels of organisation and activity among union members is problematic, to say the least, although, again, there are a few important exceptions there. And on the student side, they face um, student unions that have been decimated by voluntary student unionism and, again, have been beholden to craven labour student politicians who aren't interested in a fighting activist union but more seeing the student unions as a vehicle for their own career path into parliament. So I do think that it isn't about, like there's, there is a willingness of staff to fight these attacks. People in higher education see the, um, the scope of this crisis and they want to do something about it, but they need a lead there because the traditions of organisation, uh, the basics like how you organise, what does a delegate do, what rights do we have that we can use, no one knows those things. So you have to take seriously the, the starting point work of training new delegates and basic organisation in our workplace. And mm. to be clear, our union has not taken that work seriously over the past few decades. They've left too many branches just to stultify and even when there are opportunities to engage in serious industrial action, serious resistance, they usually do what they can not to use it or they do it in such a half-hearted way that demoralises members who do want to be activists. Um, and these days they seem to be spending more time and energy clamping down on dissent within the union than fighting the vice-chancellors and the government. So... To be clear again, <laughs> what we're fighting on all of those fronts, the union leadership, the vice-chancellors who are more than happy with the government's cuts if they get a handout for research, and the government itself. So if you see what we're up against, you see how serious the need to get prepared and organised really is. Um, and I think that it is important to know that when we've been doing that basic work, we keep meeting people who want to fight um, and now we have some wonderful examples of defiance in the, the students in Sydney, for instance, um, and that sort of seems to be boosting people's spirits, and that's really great. So, yeah, I think in terms of where we're at, we need to be realistic but defiant. Yeah. And we've got these kind of layers of uh, lack of resistance that ends up meaning that it's us, you know, that whole there's no one going to save us but us and the scale of the crisis I think people are starting to realize that you know you go from a liberal government who wants to cut everything to working to them working with vice chancellors who are prepared to work with a liberal government who wants to cut everything and offer no resistance and then the vice chancellors who work 
with the leadership of the NTEU who want to just work with them and try to minimize or, you know, do deals um, and just throw up their hands and say it's too big of a crisis to be able to offer any resistance. So then you come down the next layer to actual active members of the union saying, wait a second, you know, uh, mm. why is no one else offering any resistance? Like, And then yeah. to make the argument that, well, no, they're not. So the only people to do that is going to be us. But I just wanted to talk a little bit about the package, um, as it's known, the Jobs Ready Graduate Package, because I think that adds another layer um, to what was already uh, sort of monolithic um, yeah, attack <laughs> uh, that would have happened anyway, given the impact, as Liam outlined, of the pandemic. But now, you know, um, Liberal government thinks, okay, why not restructure and we'll make up some bullshit thing about making people job ready or whatever. So, Jack, you've been looking in some detail at, at what's in this package. Can you give us a real quick um, overview? And especially, I guess, you're a casual worker. There's a lot been said about casuals, the impacts that this might have um, on you and, and your fellow casuals, including me. Yeah, thanks, Roz. Um, and I think what Katie mentioned is really important. Um, coming into this crisis as a casual worker and seeing not just the crisis within universities, but also within our own union and how we're responding to the crisis. Um, it, it's really sad and we do need a sort of defiant uh, approach that, um, yeah, looks to sort of uh, fight back not only against the, uh, you know, deteriorating working conditions that we're experiencing, but against the teen reforms. Um, for me, the teen reforms are just that further step towards the uh, neoliberal restructuring of higher education. Um, the most, I think the most important thing is that the reforms will just place that further squeeze on the sector. So as an example, the expansion of domestic places proposed for the coming years is not actually accompanied by additional funding. So it's this ongoing tendency of, you know, rather than funding universities properly, the government are looking to find further efficiencies within the uh, existing system. I think two points worth considering um, are that the return of international students will be continued to be constrained by border closures um, and may have a pipeline financial effect for over the coming years. Universities will continue to restructure, consolidate, and downsize. So you said and the pipeline. On, <laughs> yeah, on top of um, on top of this, uh, Australia's net debt position is expected to reach 966.2 billion by 2024. So eventually, um, the government may seek to address the budget deficit through squeezes on public services, including higher education. Uh, all of this is really concerning, given that. Uh, the teen reforms may allow the education minister to reduce the university's funding without parliamentary scrutiny or approval over this transition period of the next few years. Um, but in in total, I think, and overall for workers, this means a further entrenched university bureaucracy. It means more job cuts, increased workloads for those who remain, and higher rates of casualisation. It seems that professional staff are at risk of, uh, you know, further casualisation or outsourcing of some services as universities try to reduce costs. Um, and the teen reforms uh, propose changes to the way that research and teaching is funding it may lead to a break in the traditional link between teaching and research. I think that casual academics will have to navigate a more casualised, overworked, uh, precarious, possibly two-tiered university sector in search of permanent work and I think the permanent work will increasingly take the form of teaching only positions. Most teaching only positions are casual however um, permanent teaching only positions are sometimes problematic because they can tend to involve massive workloads but also worse conditions and pay compared to traditional academic positions so yeah, casual university workers will have to try and navigate all these challenges over the coming years and um, be part of the fight against them. Yeah, I mean, and from all of that, it's really clear that 
the number of casual workers is not actually going to get any smaller overall, I think. And so that's another um, challenge on the table for people organising in universities is, is how you organise casuals. And again, a, a missing part of a many a very big list of missing things that the union hasn't been doing um, to prepare for a situation like this. And I think for me, what st- stands out, one of the things that really stands out of the TN package is the idea that universities get paid um, for what it costs to teach students a particular subject and not a, a dollar more. And so that idea that you have a higher quality of education if you have teaching performed by people who are actively engaged in the kind of cutting edge of research in their discipline. Um, that has been deliberately now severed. So I agree with um, what you're saying, Jack, about the the potential for a, a two-tiered system, although um, we will have to talk about that, I think, on another episode because that's a huge topic I think you know the future of higher education what this could look like but yeah um thank you so Grace um the whole package is kind of aimed at well the way that they've tried to sell this package is to say that um this will actually be good for students because you're gonna be more um job Mm. ready uh what is the real impact for students and how have students kind of reacted to all of this Yeah, well, I mean, that's a bit of a joke, isn't it? Um, The idea that we're all going to be kind of uh, sent to these uh, wonderful jobs that we're going to be all the more ready for out of these changes. Um, The government obviously called this the job-ready graduate package because there's this story that they have about it that art students are just racking up these huge debts for no job prospects. Um, Basically, they will all end up as just baristas who have read way too much Foucault, whereas science students will end up contributing to society. They'll have gainful employment. So this bill isn't actually going to hurt students at all. In fact, it's going to be helping, uh, rewarding those science students who have made the choice to enter a degree that's job ready and actually helping all of these poor art students who are just um, kind of aimlessly racking up huge amounts of debt and are not going to get a job afterwards obviously bullshit. Um, The reality is that the courses um, with fee increases or decreases don't just correlate with likelihood of future employment or the quality of of those jobs or anything like that. Um, Students in arts, in law, in communication are going to be taking on way more debt, sometimes uh, more than twice the debt that they currently take on. We already pay back our hex debts for years and years and years. So, this will mean higher debts um, a longer time paying them off. And when we talk about, uh, when or when the government talk about jobs, what they mean is not like better jobs for us or increased likelihood that we'll actually get them um, or an easier time paying off our hex because these jobs will be higher paid or anything like that. It's code for reorganising universities to suit corporate interests, what kind of graduates corporations want to come out of the other end of the degree factory. I think The other part of how this is going to impact students quite severely is that students who are struggling, who fail half of their units in their first year, will just lose access to the HEX system altogether, which means that they just don't get the government loan. They'd have to pay um, the full fees up front um, or just leave the course or find a different course. Um, So, this is really like a quite path-breaking attack. HEX is like crap. It's basically like taxing working class people for the cost of a degree that benefits business. But this, I think, is really designed to undermine um, even the universality of access to that for domestic students and start off a process where some students are going to have to pay full fees for their degree. Um, I think the other part of this, because there's this big narrative that like, the science students were going to benefit and the art students were going to be worse off and it was all a mixed bag. Um, But students who are in these courses that don't have the fee increases are still going to be worse off under this as well. Um, The whole premise of the bill is that more students are going to get churned through uni for no extra cost to the government. So areas where the, the maximum fee that unis can charge has been lowered are also areas where overall funding is going down. So those students that are um, uh, going into the, the courses with the lower fees are going to have a far worse quality of education with fewer resources and staff. So one case where this is really evident is at ANU, 
where science, which is supposedly the the job ready area where we're all going to like all the students are going to be benefiting from the cuts to fees, is set to lose 103 staff. Mm. Um, actually, more staff than that, but that's the net number because they're hiring a few extra. So that's that's incredible. That's really drastic. There's also going to be going through all these mergers where a huge number of courses are going to be just cut, a whole lot of schools just like sucked into a a fewer, like a smaller number of schools and a lot of staff going in that process as well. Um, So really like the, the most drastic cuts on the campus. And all of this kind of feeds into a bigger picture of how the cuts and the fee hikes are going to be impacting us. Like Higher education in Australia benefits corporations. Like we get told that we should be paying these high fees because we will get this massive private benefit at the end of it in terms of a a better life, higher wages in the long term, whatever. Um, Deloitte did a really interesting report about this in like 2015, I think, um, where they were talking about the way that um, the value of university education, um, the value it adds to the um, productive capacity of Australia is equivalent to about $140 billion of the GDP in 2014. So, like, Australia's GDP was way higher, corporate profits were way higher because of the impact that uni education had um, on on society, um, on the productivity of the people who have those qualifications. So, our education's financially benefiting business way more than us, but we're stuck paying back part of that cost And now, you know, we see this culmination of a long-term project of the government to push more and more of that cost away from business and onto us. And they're just accelerated in the crisis. You know, it's opened up an opportunity for them to make a big step in this regard in just tailoring the content of what we're studying more and more to capitalist interests and decreasing the amount that businesses actually have to contribute toward the cost. So, um, I guess in short, like students are really ropeable about it. It's, um, it's infuriating and there's been the start of, um, of a, a student fight back and a lot of protest. Yeah. I mean, we've talked about universities as degree factories. I mean, Katie would remember mm. back in t- 2002, I'm sure you uh, mm. wrote articles about the degree factory, but really now, I mean, especially with the online learning aspect as well, uh, that I think will be a money-saving thing to keep around where possible that you can imagine these, you know, massive class sizes, um, flipped classrooms. So it's basically like here's a bunch of material that you need to look at in your own time and then a a couple of all-in online lectures, giant tutorials delivered by casuals and then tick, you know, you've got a degree done. Um, So, yeah, I – yeah, it does really point all of those in all of those directions. I mean, and again, another very overused, probably the most overused phrase in this whole discussion broadly is the neoliberal university. And we talk about it and, uh, you know, um, small L liberals talk about it. But politically, when we talk about it as socialist limb, what do we mean mm. by neoliberal universities? And what's that look like now? Yeah, I mean, in some ways, you can, you, like, you can. The starting point could just be to reflect on what Jack and Grace just described, and you know, that is the sort of that that is a really good kind of uh, you know freeze frame of what of what the neoliberal uh, university looks like today. Um, and you know, I, I mean, you can emphasize those points Grace made about the role of higher education in, um, you know, in within Australian capitalism and and gearing that increasingly towards the interests of business. Like that's all an important part of it, but I think one of the things that has been remarkable about this whole process over the last few decades has been uh, the extent to which the universities themselves, in addition to sort of feeding business and feeding that that sector, the universities themselves have become you know mega businesses, the big business. Uh, so RMIT, for example, has a value of uh, over four billion dollars. You know, in the course of this year, as we've been sort of gathering data to, to organise our resistance against the restructures and stuff. Uh, one of the things that came out was that if RMIT was on the stock exchange, it would be in the top 100 companies in Australia. You know, it'd be on that that, that list. It's it's a massive, you know, it's bigger than ni- the Nine Network, for example, bigger than that. You know, it's it's big business. And profits are at the heart of that. You know, the universities these days don't, you know, it's true that they serve this kind of social function of, you know, feeding, uh, you know, educated workers into the Australian capitalist, you know, into, into the workplace and benefiting Australian capitalism. Uh, but they themselves are massively 
profitable as well and they're driven uh, by that profit. They also, you know, have you know, this kind of microcosm of the sort of disparity between CEO salaries and workers' wages. You know, the university sector is probably where that is the, the most pronounced. You know, I'm sure there are people out there who kind of still have this vision of university staff being in ivory towers on good salaries and all the rest of it. Uh, but the the actual, you know, in scientific terms, the amount of exploitation that is underway uh, in the universities is is enormous. The vice chancellor salaries in Australia are among the highest in the world, possibly the highest in the world. You know, like over a million dollars. Uh, some of them now approaching two million. Um, you know, like just scandalously high uh, salaries. A lot of it, of course, subsidised not just from uh, you know the international student fee revenue, uh, but from public funding. You know, these things are, for all intents and purposes, still public institutions. Uh, and yet these bastards are making millions. Uh, bastards at the top are making millions of the, you know feathering their own nest out of it. Um, the other, you know, the, what that looks like then on the ground is that because this thing is driven, because the university is driven by profit first and foremost, then it means that all of the activities that are deemed to be kind of non-profitable, or they talk about being core and non-core activities, they've been using this this terminology for a couple of decades now, all of the activities like that are at risk, constantly at risk. So libraries, for example, are under you know constant kind of threat of restructure and understaffing. Any sort of... Um, any activity that could be deemed to be, you know, not connected directly to teaching and therefore bringing in revenue is also at risk. So, you know, every university in the country now has outsourced their gardeners, their security staff, all the rest of it. It's just outsourced and gone. Uh, you know, so all those sorts of activities are, are at risk all the time. Um, there's also, because of the profit drive, there's a massive and kind of ceaseless uh, push to increase the exploitation of academics in particular through uh, you know, increasing casualization, increasing class sizes, and the constant squeeze, the kind of never-ending battle we have uh, to save uh, research allocations. Um, and then in terms of what that looks like for curricula, then, yeah, all the courses that are sort of more profitable that the university can make more money out of, uh, those are the ones that get favored, whereas the ones that are more expensive uh, have to kind of battle to survive. It's, you know, I've taught, it, I've worked at RIT for over 20 years now, and I'm in that rare instance, probably rare in the whole country. I'm someone who's actually taught the same course, like the same subject uh, for that whole 20-year period. I've seen the class sizes double with my own eyes in that same subject. Mm. Uh, you know, so that's like this is how this stuff plays out. In terms of the political impact overall on people who work in the sector, uh, the overarching impact is that everyone who works there is constantly on edge. There's constant instability and uncertainty. Nobody knows uh, what the sector will look like next year. And all of this was before the crisis even set in, you know, like I've, as I said, I've worked at MIT for 20 years uh, and I've seen a never ending cycle of restructures and constant shift and change for change sake. So yeah, that sort of neoliberalism is not just about the role of education under capitalism. It's about the sort of increasing kind of, um, uh, you know, commodification of education and the kind of turning of the university itself into a more sort of cutthroat corporatized, you know, you know, brazenly capitalist enterprise. Uh, with all of the kind of class conflict that that, in, that that entails. And I think you can see that with all the, the personnel um, that are brought in to be the managers of these corporate institutions now, that there's, it's, not, it's nothing like the kind of, as you say, the stereotype image of, you know, um, pipe-chewing, uh, <laughs> blazer-wearing kind of academics who sit around thinking about the best way to educate the students or whatever. It's literally people who used to work at, you know, GlaxoSmithKline or, you know, Microsoft, like Martin Bean, the vice chancellor of RMIT, who know how to manage, who know how to uh, cut costs, um, make staff more efficient, you know, uh, restructure back office, which is another horrible euphemism, um, all of that kind of stuff, rebranding, marketing. Marketing is definitely a core um, yeah. part of university work nowadays. So, as somebody who works in a university as well, and you have for a long time, Katie, like the lives of workers in universities, can you describe what that's like? Because I think for people who are not as involved as we all are, um, it, it may be harder to kind of imagine what, what it's like to work in a university today. Yeah, thanks. Um, look, I think uh, Liam really started to, to go into it and um, to, to build off what what he said really because that's that's the nub of it and you'd get it if anyone who follows an academic on twitter will see that it is 
um, not a pleasant place to work in general. And I do think that it's important to say that first off, that there is this myth out there that university workers are privileged and, and well off. And that myth perpetuated not just by the government in order to justify their attacks and to, to try to make people less sympathetic to the you know, the university staff who they are directly attacking. Um, but it also came from our union leadership when they were trying to justify their sellouts earlier this year, that we wouldn't be able to um, get any solidarity because people just think we're well off. And it's true for a small minority of professors and the senior corporate managers on hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, um, but for the vast majority, it's not. So other people have talked about the casualisation. At my university, over 70% of staff are on casual contracts. And it's not just academic staff. Actually, it is increasingly professional staff as well. Um mm-hmm. And that is one of the outcomes of the the constant restructures is that you're getting more casualisation within um, the professional, i.e. the the non-academic staff at at universities. And in fact, at at Melbourne University, the number of non-academic casual staff has dropped in just one year from August last year to August this year by over 30%. So you can see from that that they have casual workers at the universities have no rights there is no job security which means that you can't plan for your life you can't um get out loans and and so on because you don't know when you're going to be thrown off your contract there's no annual leave there's no sick leave um and on top of that there's the exploitation um that that liam talked about in terms of increasing workloads but there's also the the literal theft of millions of dollars at each university um from casual workers in stolen unpaid labor because they just um fiddle the books with what you're what you're being paid um, and then you do that you know thousands and thousands of times with your thousands of casuals it adds up to millions of dollars so there are a few rights under the enterprise agreement or in industrial law so the that's then been an excuse by the union to say well we can't organize casual workers because they're more difficult to organize they don't want to fight because they're also scared but I think we've really seen in the last couple of years that casuals have come to the forefront um, of of the fight back and that's been the case whether it's been challenging the union sellouts this year's um, but also um, the push to fight um, for against uh, wage theft and to push the union to fight against wage theft um, as well. So the casuals have the sharp end of it but it's not a picnic for everyone else um, either. Um, even someone like myself, I've been on in an ongoing contract for um, 10, 10 years or just a bit over, I think, 12 years, and I've seen uh, at least four major restructures in that time. Mm-hmm. And given the size of the job cuts that, in, that are involved in every one of those restructures, the idea that we have job security or that our ongoing contracts are actually ongoing is, is laughable. I'm, you know, we got told two days into the lockdown um, this year that the second lockdown in Melbourne that 450 staff there's one in nine ongoing staff at our university were going to be made redundant um, so as if not everyone every single person on the ongoing contract is wondering if it's their job that's going to be going so that's not job security mm. um, there's also the fact that even outside of the restructures, there are constant budget cuts and budget restraints. So we have a staffing cap across all non-academic areas at my university. So it means that anyone who leaves is not replaced and it increases the workload of everyone uh, who remains. And the amount of unpaid overtime across the sector uh, is, is also criminal as well as a wage theft. And then on top of like, all of all of those horrors, <laughs> you get the entrenchment, and, and Liam started to go into this, of that corporatised way of, of working that is one of the reasons why a lot of us, you know, thought maybe being uh, employed at a university would be a bit nicer because it wouldn't happen, but it does, is driven by this bloated management layer which gets bigger every time there's a restructure and his bonuses seem to depend more on the generation of buzzwords and billboards than it does in actual work 
improvements or the even just the actual work that we do and they're really life destroying and and I mean that literally um from the experiences that I've seen my workmates go through it is life destroying these problems of overwork job insecurity underpayment the basic disregard for staff as human beings with dignity in their own work is then compounded by the buffoonery of these senior managers um thinking of an example the, the most recent one I can think of um I get the staff emails at Latrobe because I'm also um, a postgrad student there and they so they're going through their restructures they put out an email that had two sections in the table of contents the first was are you okay question mark for you know are you okay day the second one was redundancies now open yeah. It gives you a sense of... I know, buffoonery the, is a very generous term for it. I, <laughs> it and I think just, people are genuinely kind of shocked by... Or, uh, it's like, how many more times can you be absolutely disgusted by the people who run these, you know... I remember at La Trobe when they called... They changed it from human resources to people and culture. It's like, uh, yeah. what are you... You know, like... um. And the fact that they they need to restructure in many ways to kind of justify their own position because who's going to write the kind of change proposals and whatever um, if there's no changes? So then they're like, let's change everything and I'm sure we could make some efficiency somewhere and then literally has no impact on the budget but continues to make everyone who works in the sector feel increasingly despairing about the whole situation um yeah it's pretty bleak uh so let's go to the response um and i mean the ntu response to the tn reforms has been extremely typical of their approach jack um which is to say boo-hoo why are the liberals so mean to universities uh is there has there been any more than that can we get some crossbenchers to Maybe say maybe vote against this. Let's um, send them an email. Uh, yeah, is, have I missed something there, Jack, or is that pretty much? No, I response? think you're right. I think um, you know most of the activity has really centered on uh, lobbying crossbench senators. I think you know it's really important to um, note that the NTU leadership went into this crisis at the start of the year with a concessions first approach. It's, uh, you know, headfirst dive into concessions that sent the signal to university management and government as well that during this prolonged ongoing crisis impacting on universities that, well, the workers are willing to actually shoulder the load. So we didn't really start off um, the, uh, you know, defence of the sector against the reforms on the front foot. We were already on the back foot as a result of uh, the leader, NTU leadership. This has sort of limited our potential. And more recently, the the NTU has undertaken the uh, what they call the Run Unis Fairly campaign. Um, and so this involved um, yeah, a focus on lobbying crossbench senators. There was, you know, the petitions. There was the sending the emails to crossbench senators, um, sending in submissions to the Senate inquiry, and, you know, members asking their local MPs not to support the bill. Um, this approach, you know, didn't stand up um, in, in practice in terms of um, defeating the teen reforms. And, um, yeah, it, it, it's a rather, it seems like a rather limited framework for, you know, fighting against the teen reforms and, you know, standing up for the sector. Mm. Yeah, limited is again. <laughs> Generous, absolutely pathetic would be how I would characterize it. And I mean, yeah, as you said, the concessions first approach from the very beginning of the crisis opened the door to the government, I think, um, who may not have even really been thinking that this was a good time to try to restructure a whole sector. But with the NTU saying, well, you know, there's money to be saved in universities, there's salaries that could be cut. Uh, they might have actually taken the signal, you know, from the union movement, which which is like the biggest shame 
job ever uh, to say, oh, well, okay, then if you say so, let's go for it. Let's um, go harder and cut as much as we can. Let's have a look at students quickly and how the students have responded because, as Grace said, people are pretty ropeable. Uh, How has that ropeability been channeled by the leadership of the student movement so far, Grace? Mm, Well, um, it is a real mixed bag. Um, So, uh, the strategy of the people who currently occupy most of the um, leading positions within NUS, it's a national union of students, and also like a lot of the local student unions, um, like my union, ANUSA, um, has really um, uh, been quite similar to what Jack just described in terms of involving this real fixation on like lobbying the crossbench. For anyone who's like blissfully unaware, um, the crossbench at the moment includes, you know, Pauline Hanson, the Centre Alliance, so not like luminaries of the left or something. These people are people who are never, ever going to be on the side of students. It's a totally bankrupt strategy. Um, when right-wing crossbenchers have like voted against fee increases and stuff in the past, it's not because there's been a, um, a campaign to call them up and like explain to them why fee increases are bad and students should be supported. It's because there's been, you know, impressive sustained student protest campaigns that have like really kept the issue on the agenda, have meant that there's like public awareness, public opinion, a level of uh, disruption in society that add together to mean that these Cretans have to feel like they have to be seen to be against the government's plans. So the decisive factor uh, really in in whether we can win uh, when things like this come up or not is what sort of campaign we build, how much student uh, mobilisation we can kind of generate, not how much we can suck up to some like fuckwit crossbencher. Um, but I think the reason there's this obsession um, with with the crossbench is the politics of the people that occupy um, these student union positions. So most of them come from the ALP. I think it's very obvious why um, uh, young ALP uh, members would want to call up parliamentarians and hang out at the parliament all the time for some lobbying. It's, it's basically like Disneyland for these people. It's like where if you're like... Um, uh, a young uh, a future junior branch stacker, you could meet your future Somurek. Um I think, like, yeah, these people, you can really see why they're into it. Like um, speed dating for scumbags. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Get the opportunity to, like, network, meet all of these um, scum in parliament and figure out which one you'll work for in the end. Um, I think also, like, there's other people involved from a more conservative political faction called the Independents. Um, they also just have this perspective that, sees power um, all concentrated in parliament. This The only option if you're going to change anything is get into parliament, which a lot of them plan on doing, just like their Labor students, or ingratiating yourself with someone that's already in there and kind of begging them not to do um, bad things to students. So very obvious problem immediately with this is that no one um, in parliament really gives a shit about students. Even like when the Greens and the ALP did vote against the bill, the ALP have just made it clear that they're not going to reverse it when they get in. They have no plans for that. They never do. Um, it's also just a strategy that's really pacifying. Like all the focus of the student union is on getting, you know, myself, the young Labor student into parliament where I can meet my future boss and where all the change happens. There's no point in that strategy to like mobilizing students for street protests, building campaigns on their campuses, And it puts a limit on how much you want to criticise these right-wing parliamentarians because you're trying to butter them up. So it's a real conservatising pressure, I think, for the student campaign. Um, I think connected with this is this other really terrible strategy that's been taken up by some of the local student unions, which was to kind of lobby the uni administrations and suck up to them as well. Same problems, like these people aren't attacking students because they don't know that it's wrong or that we don't like it or they haven't got enough voicemails from us or whatever. Um, I think that the stuff that I was saying before about the role of higher education in the system, kind of combined with the stuff like Liam and Katie was saying about like the way these universities are massive businesses and they're run that way, 
This means like uni admins are not like going to have their better nature appealed to by us. They're the bosses of the university. They all supported Tian's bill. They've been cutting courses, cutting staff. And even though they got like denied JobKeeper and like had a lot to whinge about in what the Liberals are doing to higher education, it's not ideal for them. But they've taken the opportunity to like streamline everything, restructure the campus, cut courses that they think are unprofitable, whatever. So like trying to lobby them into changing their minds and the, the buttering them up strategy. Like I think um, like really uh, jeopardizes the the potential to have a serious campaign that we need to fight against these fuckers and what they're doing on university campuses. So this all sounds pretty negative, obviously, but I, I don't think it has to inevitably be like this um, for, you know, the reason I said before, students are really mad, like there's capacity to have um, a, a fight against this. And also in the past, the NUS has played a really decisive role in campaigns to stop attacks on universities, particularly when socialists have occupied positions in it, um, like the education officer uh, role. So I think, you know, if you think about like students having this ability to be quite disruptive, to be able to protest in the streets, cause trouble, etc., there's not an issue with the the physical capacity for this to happen. There's an issue with the politics of the people who are leading our student union. And it's a real contested space. So there's these conservative um, limiting perspectives, but there's also socialists who are fighting um, and have been able to successfully argue for and coordinate some protest actions so far that I'll, I'll probably talk about a bit later. Yeah. I think you've hit the nail on the head about the politics of it, and that's exactly the same about the politics um, of the union. And mm. so the idea that um, it's taken socialists to make the arguments as union activists and delegates, um, that the leadership of the union's conservative uh, begging approach is not the right one. So, Liam, let's talk about that quickly. I'm conscious of the time. Um, mm. and maybe there's some issues we can come back to in future episodes. There's clearly a lot of ground here. But just quickly, what's been different in terms of NTU fight back compared to NTU don't fight at all? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, these, the, the two approaches are sort of counterposed really. You know, with the moment the crisis hit in you know March or April or whatever, we had two choices. And they, they, you know, we could either crawl belly up to the employers and offer, you know, offer to give them – their pound of flesh and beg for their mercy, uh, you know, and, and make vain, you know, try to get vain promises out of them that, you know, we'll give up all of our paying conditions, like historic massive pay cuts is what the NCU leadership were offering uh, and managed to get through at some branches scandalously, uh, you know, offer them all this in some vain hope that they'll promise not to sack a bunch of people, which turned out to be a failed uh, strategy anyway, because a lot of those branches that did sign up uh, to those pay cut deals are still pushing ahead with massive job layoff, you know, mass- massive layoffs anyway. Uh, you know, so there was that strategy. Alternatively, there's the, the approach that says we need to use this opportunity to organize resistance and uh, and to try to, you know, not that we can win and save every job, but we need to organize genuine resistance and not go in uh, with a kind of surrender, you know, concessionary approach from the outset. Organize the resistance and try to use this opportunity to strengthen uh, the rank and file fighting capacity of our union, you know, to turn our union into something or to use this moment to try to step towards turning our union into something that it unfortunately has never really been, you know, a battle-hardened fighting force that, uh, you know, layered with, you know, rank-and-file fighters who are prepared to take serious industrial action when the time comes. And, you know, yeah, this is something that the union has never been. So that's kind of our starting point. It, you know, it starts from getting that question right, that we don't go in and offer concessions straight up. We resist. We resist right down the line, even if the odds are stacked against us. And we do that through organizing on the ground and trying to build our rank and file strength. We summarized in NTU Fightback, we summarized all of this as a kind of six-point plan, six plan, which is worth just reading out the six points because they're, they're a really good kind of guide to action, I think. First off, that we organize to vote no uh, to any change, any attempt to change our enterprise agreement and to, and to undermine or, or you know, water down our um, existing rights. Uh, and that has been really the starting point for resistance on a lot of branches now. Uh, second, that we run that we run a vigorous, systematic local contest uh, on jobs and workloads. You know, to defend jobs uh, and and to and to defend our workloads because the other you know the flip side of job cuts, of course, is a massive increase in workloads for people left behind. So we need to run those as you know fighting campaigns on the ground. Third, that we encourage and we resource and we connect 
these local battles, that that should be the priority of the union. And we call in NTU fight back, we call for that to be done, you know, and, and some branches we've had, you know, small steps towards getting that done. Fourth, that we use all of these little local battles to build industrial strength towards the next bargaining round. And we use that power to demand substantial life-changing improvements in conditions and a new deal for public education. You know, So in terms of addressing all of the systemic, deep-rooted problems that we've been talking about today, we need to use this opportunity presented by the crisis and the organization of resistance to it uh, to build our power in the next bargaining round to really try to improve things you know, significantly and permanently. And five, uh, that I guess we keep our eye on the big prize, which is that we want a fully funded public and free uh, education system and that this fight is part of that, that broader battle as well. Uh, and the sixth step in our six-point plan for NTU Fight Back uh, is to, that we have some kind of eye on the elections. Um, but, you know, obviously the strategy that we're trying to organise around and, and agitate for is something that is, you know, 180 degree opposed to what the, NTU, the current NTU leadership uh, have proven to, to be, you know, committed to, which is they're, com- they're committed to sell-off condition, you know, sell-off concessions, you know, belly up, surrender, uh, and and we want to organise something that, you know, stark opposition to that. So that's our kind of whole approach. Um, obviously, it's you know different on branch by branch depending on how many people. Uh, you know, well, to be honest, to be blunt, it depends how many socialists there are in a given branch because it's the socialists who have been you know at the heart of this. Um, but anyway, yeah, that's mm. our sort of vision. And for people who want to read more about that, I'll put the link in the show notes. Um, and I think wh- what I'd like to do is to is to come back and have a part two of this discussion that um, also relates to some of the um, engagement that we've been having recently with the Jane McAlevey organising method. People might have heard of this. It's a kind of union. Jane McAlevey is a, a pretty well-known union organiser in the US who has a very um, bottom-up rank-and-file approach to rebuilding union strength. And I think we've got to have that discussion properly. Um, So I reckon let's make that our part two. And let's end with just Grace. Um, If there are students listening to this who think, okay, it's all over now anyway, uh, yeah, I agree with you. You know, the leadership of the student unions has been crap. We couldn't – we didn't get the crossbench to do what we wanted. So, you know, what's the point now? Um, what would be your answer to that question? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question because it, it seems like things might be over because TN's bill has passed. But I think there very much is a point in continuing to resist. It's not over. Um, obviously, on every campus, there's job cuts, there's mergers, there's courses being cut. And there's a necessity there in that regard for a student campaign against those things. But also, um, the fee increases that we've heard so much about um, as part of TN's bill aren't actually here yet. Um, the way it ha- has worked is that um, the the government have given universities the ability to charge higher fees. The maximum student contribution amount has been raised. Um, but that does not mean that university admins can just get away with charging that. There needs to be a serious student activist campaign from right now fighting against management attempts to set higher fees and against staff and course cuts and um, for a free publicly funded university system. Um, That is very much uh, possible. So we're going to need a strategy for that um, that sees the government and and the uni bosses as our adversaries and aims to mobilise as many students as possible in activism against them. Um, We need a strategy that sees there isn't any hope for us in the crossbench and there's no hope in waiting for the ALP to reverse this. Um, We need a strategy that's going to rely on our own strength as students, our ability to protest, to disrupt, and on our relationship as well with people who genuinely share our interests, Um, so university staff who are fighting back against these cuts as well. Um, So that's a strategy that could actually um, push back against these attacks and win some things. But realistically, if that's going to happen, um, kind of following on from what Liam said, it's going to require more socialists, but more student socialists. So Student politics is this really contested space. The shit strategies that I mentioned before um, are things that more moderate student groups fight for in the student world, um, and socialists are the ones that are fighting to implement the strategy that I've just outlined. Um, So I reckon if you kind of think that sounds good, the best way to ensure that that strategy is actually taken up is for there to be more student socialists on campuses, in the student unions, in the campaign groups who are fighting for that perspective 
and who are actually just on the ground organising the protest events that we need to see in each city. Um, Everywhere where there's been really excellent protests around the country about this, I can guarantee you there's socialists at the heart of it. So the best thing that you can do if you're listening to this and you want to fight against the university cuts and the fee hikes, obviously join the local campaign, go to the rallies, but also you've got to find the socialist alternative club on your university campus and become an organised socialist. Okay, excellent plug. And obviously uh, through Red Flag you'll find the details of how to get Mm -hmm. in touch with um, finding out more about socialist politics, joining in discussion groups as a first step if you haven't already uh, done those. Um, They're free and available on every campus as well. So there's plenty for people to do and follow up. And uh, like I said, I think there's plenty for this podcast to follow up and discuss more. I know that Jack and Katie had more to say, but um, thank you so much for coming on the show let's come back and do part b um so yeah it's been a fantastic discussion thank you grace thank you katie thank you jack and thank you liam um we've got universities to win and we have a world to win you're listening to red flag radio